Perfect. So welcome back, everybody, to No Story Left Behind, number 19. Joining me this week over Zoom is Steve. Thanks enough for, thank you for taking the time to carve out some time in your afternoon. And of course, uh, Nina Golemi. Did I say that right? Golemi? Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, owner and founder of uh, Serenity Mental Health Services is joining us as well. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us this afternoon. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. It's truly a pleasure. <laughs> and this I wanted to start off. So uh, listeners, we're going to be doing a two-part episode. You can listen to part one now. Next week, part two will be coming up. But I want to start off with your career in the Marine Corps. Um, but before that, how about we just start at the beginning? Um, where'd you, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, so not too far away. <laughs> and what's life like down in, uh, down in that neck of the woods? <laughs> It's very peaceful. I've noticed a lot of change in this nowadays, but as a kid, we were able to ride our bikes all over town whenever we wanted, and we always felt safe. <laughs> That's a little bit different nowadays. And yeah. As everybody's starting to experience. What was life like at home? I mean, your day-to-day, if you will. Yeah, I grew up in a family of artists. So both of my parents were artists. My dad uh, was a professional sports artist with the NFL. So we were always encouraged to explore the visual arts as well as music. And it was just the four of us, my parents and my sister and I, but everyone on both of my side of the family were an artist of some sort. And so how do you get to be an artist with the NFL? That's, you know, honestly, I think that he started off with smaller contracts and then he started to gain traction in that field and began uh, being noticed by others and then were contacted by different agents. And he's a photorealist, so I'm not going to give out too much information because of the clientele that I work (laughs) with, but (laughs) yeah. So then from there, I mean, how do you, well, I mean, what was life like in for you in high school or you play any sports than yourself or I sure did I, the art classes. Yeah. I like to do a lot of different things. Sports were really important to me. I did cross country skiing. I did a little bit of track. Wasn't my thing. Um, funny enough, being a Marine, having to run a lot later, but <laughs> basketball, volleyball, and definitely of course the arts and lots of different types of art classes. And for you, I mean, Growing up, you know, art side of the house. I mean, we talked a little bit via email, but you were in band then? Oh, in yeah. high school, or did you pick that up when you got to the Marine Corps? Typical fifth grade clarinet player. <laughs> My mom gave me a clarinet because <laughs> that's what they had in their closet. So ended up playing in middle school and then in high school, wind symphony, that type of thing. Did you stick with uh, clarinet? I did. I, I didn't want to do it at first. I wanted to play French horn, but... Um, they said, no, that's what we have for you is this little plastic clarinet. So that's what I got and made it work. Yeah, me and Steve terrorized the little brass section for, what, 10 years? I think yeah. it was. Yeah. All right, what'd you play? Both trombone. Okay, yes. I actually, I wanted to play flute and uh, I uh, All right. <laughs> I went in I went in and uh, um you remember Alex, Mikey's dad was the other yeah. band teacher. Uh, Gordon's mom was one of the band teachers in middle mm-hmm. school. And one of our mutual friends, his dad was the other band teacher. And he took one look at me and he's like, yeah, your lips are way too big. to play flute. <laughs> here's, here's, uh, okay. here's trombone. Try this out. And he's like, yeah, this <laughs> sure. is better for you. I'm like, All right. <laughs> so, it was, yeah. And I, I originally wanted to play trumpet at first. 
for whatever reason I had that in my head, but couldn't get a note out on the mouthpiece there. So they switched me over to trombone as well. Yeah. Picked up baritone, <laughs> I think junior or senior year for kicks, but that was a lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. So when did you start to think that you wanted to join the military and what it made was, you want to go that route? Yeah. Um, it was kind of a surprise, uh, <laughs> ended up joining my last year of high school. So they put me in the delayed entry program, the DEP. And it was not really a last minute decision, but I was really on the track to go to different colleges. I toured Adelphi in New York and a couple of other ones around because I wanted to be a professional musician. But then I also wanted the entire identity rewriting and wanted a new challenge that I didn't think I could get with college. So I ended up getting in touch with a recruiter who was specific to the band field, a gunnery sergeant who came down and uh, gave me an audition. And from there on out, I was slated to leave in September. So delayed entry program for people that aren't mm -hmm. listening. So you can sign up with when you're what, 17 is a yes. minimum and your parents just have to sign off on that. I think so. Yes. It's been a while, but that's probably how it works. <laughs> uh, how, how, what was their reaction when you came home with the paperwork? Well, I didn't come home with the paperwork right away. I had several conversations with them, um, but my mom was much more supportive than my dad. My dad actually had the recruiter over um, to sit down at the table and had a conversation with him, which was mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> what, what year was this? This was 2005. Yeah, so they, yeah, right, kind of right in the heat of things. I can, right. I can understand mm -hmm. their trepidation. Right, because 9-11 happened my freshman yeah. year. So all travel was locked down, and I think that they still had that in their heads. Yeah. I mean, did it help? A little bit down the blow with your with your father because you're looking to go into the marine or the band rather than you know uh, 11 bravo if you will right you know i think you're right i think it did help a little bit but the fact that the band still deploys i don't think really helped him <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into that <laughs> it's in the marine corps everyone's a rifleman first correct yes okay and so okay <laughs> what I'm sorry. No, um, my, I would say parents don't really understand the distinction a lot of times. Like I remember when I joined and my mom's like, well, what did you sign up for? And I was like, infantry. And she goes, isn't that just like the whole army? Like, no, <laughs> a lot of times they don't, they don't really understand, you know, the, the different jobs and like the difference in, um, mm -hmm. level of level of risk, if mm -hmm. you will. So, Right. Yeah, they just they just hear, you know, Marines, Army, whatever, and they immediately get anxious. Mm -hmm. Very two-dimensional. Especially, especially in the mid-2000s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's going through your mind? You have a year to let things marinate, if you will. Were you nervous? Uh, at oh, the prospect absolutely. Of leaving? <laughs> absolutely. I think one of the worst things that you can do to yourself, if you have any sort of anxiety about leaving for something so huge is to be part of the DEP instead of just leave the next day. So you just sit there over the summer and wait. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did your parents ever try to talk you out of it or did your friends try to talk you out of it? Go, you know, join them at the university. Oh yeah. I definitely even had teachers try to talk me out of it. They're like, what are you doing? You're supposed to go here for school. <laughs> And I remember, right, you turned down some scholarships that you had offered? 
I did. I had some scholarships for uh, their music department and I had different plans, obviously. So I had to choose, but I always knew that I was going to go to college eventually. And then when did you end up leaving? So you signed up 2005 in the delayed entry. Mm-hmm. Did you leave for boot camp then 2006? No, I graduated the, um, 2005. So then over that summer, I was in the depth. And then I left for boot camp in September, graduated December. And what was it like leaving for boot camp for you? It was quite the experience. Um, I hadn't been now growing up in Oconomowoc, it's a very small area. It's very one dimensional, uh, to say the least. There's not a whole lot of diversity there. There's not a whole lot of different experiences to have. I mean, the nearest things to do are either in Milwaukee or Madison. So an hour away. So to go to an entirely different state and to have that experience was quite eye opening. <laughs> so where do you go for, for basic for the Marines or boot camp? Excuse me. I know. I, yeah. And I think Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it depends on what side of the Mississippi you're on. So especially for females back then we went to Paris Island in South Carolina, but now they're starting to open that up. That's one of the latest things, but yeah, it was Paris Island. And what's, what's basic training for you? Like I've talked to other people in the military that kind of rag on the band a little bit saying that it's Mm -hmm. not real training, if you will, air quotes. So I think what you may be speaking to is that there is the combatant's own band. And then there's the field band, the field band, we're normal Marines. (laughs) So if you need to get, if you're going to get into the combatant's own, you have to have a master's degree and you have to be really, really good. So yeah, they're not real Marines, quote unquote. (laughs) So the lesser quality band members go into the field band and we do all the changes of commands and we do all the trainings. We go to jungle warfare training, we get deployed, things like that. So for us, our, my training was the same as any other Marine. So any, any, you know, memorable experiences or drill instructors that you got to work with at that time? Yes, absolutely. I had some fantastic drill instructors. Um, One of my favorite DIs was then Staff Sergeant Jones, who really took the time to mentor us. And when you have a leader like that, who you can tell really cares, it leaves a really lasting impact on you for the rest of your life. And of course, that developmental stage, you're only 18 or 17 and whatnot, you remember these experiences for forever. They become woven into your identity. So when they took the time to mentor us, it was particularly impactful. Another one of my favorite drill instructors that we had was then Staff Sergeant Franklin, who went on to become the first African-American female USMC first sergeant to be appointed as first sergeant of an all-male recruit unit in Paris Island. So all of these ladies were fantastic, inspiring human beings who went on to do even more incredible things in their career. I mean, that's being the first, you know, the first female to, for a first sergeant, I mean, that's gotta be a little bit of responsibility, a little bit of weight there. I mean, but from there, I mean, so so it's boot camp and then AIT. If you're in the band, do you have a separate MOS or do you do you still have? Or how does that work out? How does that pipeline go? Everyone has a different MOS. Yeah, that's just yeah. your job. Yeah, so. military occupational specialty, and so for Marines, we go to MCT, the combat training afterwards. And so for those who are going into infantry. They go into their own infant, infantry specific training, but we went to Camp Geiger 
in North Carolina in winter. And from there, then we were sent to our MOS schools. So we get dispersed all over to whichever particular unit we're attached to. And so for me, that looked like the Armed Forces School of Music in Virginia. So what was that experience like then? It was very structured. <laughs> um, I think that it was great because I was really able to fine tune my musicianship there. They're very big on the technicalities. So it's almost like going to a very specific college for undergrad just for music. And in fact, if you end up going that route as a Marine musician, it counts for college credits. Wouldn't be. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And from there, I mean, once you get out of that school, I mean, what's it, what's your, are you put into another unit and moved on to a deployment schedule from there? Or they put you kind of in the touring with the band, if you will. Right. So for band members in the field band, you get assigned to a unit and there are different field bands all over the U.S. And then there are some overseas as well. So for me, that looked like I actually got to choose Okinawa because when you get a certain audition score, they let you pick your first duty station. And I got to pick Okinawa, Japan. What is your what is your day to day like like when you're when you're not deployed? What is your what is kind of your daily schedule as a musician, because I know some, you know, some MOSs um, do the same thing, uh, deployment that they do in garrison. But then for some, like, you know, particularly infantry, you obviously can't do the same thing. So what, what is it like mm-hmm. in the band? Like, do you, how long do you practice every day? Um, what do you do when you're not practicing? Yeah. So obviously the first thing in the morning, you get up real early, you PT, you go back, get ready, get in your uniform of the day, and then you have morning muster. And then after that, you get your assignment for the day and there's some built-in practice times. And then we have a whole group rehearsal time, small group rehearsal times where you break up into either your instrument sectionals or whatever gig you're going to be having. But because the band does changes of commands, parades, um, out in Okinawa, you do a lot of higher up ceremonies, such for, for example, that there was a green tea um, matcha creating ceremony. And I totally butchered whatever that was called, but it's a sacred ceremony. And they invited a portion of the band. So we would prepare for these gigs. Um, so it just depends on the specialty of whatever it is you're going to be assigned to in the near future and concerts, of course, preparing for that. But then we also do regular training. So like I said before, we did jungle warfare training, um, lots of other different types of weapons trainings. Um, so you still have that requirement of being the rifleman first and conducting all the normal USMC trainings. Plus, you're having a lot of other responsibilities being a performance unit. Did they give you any downtime or is it just go, go, go from? It's a lot of go, go, go because our the, the band and it could be being conducted differently nowadays, but we had our own admin. So we were our own self-sustaining unit. So not only were you a bandsman, you were a rifleman, you had to do all the normal training, but then you were also assigned an admin duty too. So for me, I was public affairs for the band. So I had all those duties on top of it as well. So there wasn't a lot of downtime. So what's a public affairs admin job then? What's your responsibilities in that? It's very similar to public affairs on the grander scale, 
because there's an actual public affairs unit for the Marine Corps. So because the band is often the face of the Marine Corps, we were, I've often interfaced with a lot of higher ups and people that came in from different countries and setting up the band for success. Um, lots of advertising, so to speak, and marketing and helping get the word out there that we're going to be having different ceremonies, things like that. And combat camera a little bit. <laughs> Do many interviews then with the, was it the um, stars and stripes? Paper oh yeah. Publishing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, where did you get to play while you're over there? I mean, besides doing the ceremonies, I mean, did they do any big like concert halls or anything like that? Yeah, actually, one of my favorite experiences was being able to play with the Okinawa band. So they had their own military band and they they were fantastic musicians. The quality level between us and them was quite stark. So they were true professionals and you could tell that they were like the Commodore's own versus us being more of the field band. Um, so just phenomenal musicianship, extremely kind individuals. But yeah, we got to travel all over to South Korea, Guam, Iwo Jima to conduct the ceremonies there, Mount Fuji, Tokyo, Hiroshima, and all over mainland Japan. Did they, was it just strictly in Japan or did you get down into the Philippines or anywhere else in the Southeast? Yeah, we, we went to Guam. We were supposed to go to Australia but something happened where our leadership did not fill out all of the paperwork and we didn't get to go. We were also supposed to go to Canada and that one fell through too. So we're supposed to go out and do all these really cool things. But if the leadership drops the ball, then you miss out on those opportunities. <laughs> leadership would never drop the ball though. Never, never. Or promise you things that they're not going to deliver. <laughs> right, right. So from Okinawa, where'd you go after that? Then I was sent to, I tried to get out of it. <laughs> I was sent to North Carolina in Camp Lejeune. And same thing over in, in Camp Lejeune or where did your role change from there? My role was the same, but unfortunately it wasn't quite as exciting uh, because we were in the States and so everything was pretty local and yeah, <laughs> underwhelming. I mean, was it a change of pace for, for you to come back, you know, from Japan? I mean, obviously the culture is going to be different mm -hmm. and then coming back here. Was it a bit of a culture shock at all? It was. And it's really interesting when you are stationed overseas, you can't wait to get back to the U.S. But then when you're back in the U.S., you can't, you wish you were back over there. Can't wait to go back over again. Grass is always greener. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's the same way with deployment. Like, man, I can't mm -hmm. wait to get home. And then you're back in garrison. And you're like, just, can I please go back to Afghanistan? <laughs> right. <laughs> and did you have much downtime compared over here compared to when you're over in Okinawa? I would say the, the band's performance schedule is really quite intense. And when you're not in garrison, then you're on field ops. So we got deployed to South Korea. I got, I got to go twice. And I say got to go because that was one of the favorite things for the band was to get away from garrison and be in those field op deployments. Um, so the change of pace going from Okinawa to stateside was, I would say, a lot less intense. Not as, not, not as good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so what were you, when you're not 
trying to get out your jobs done and everything else. I mean, what were you doing for fun, both here and over in Okinawa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a huge drinking culture in the Marine Corps. So a lot of, I know, I know, it's so strange. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, so obviously we go to the E-clubs and go out in town and a lot of people go out and do karaoke and have a lot of fun out there. I personally dabbled in a lot of different things, went out with a lot of people. But one of my favorite things was to travel the island and take tons of pictures. I had a semi-professional camera, so I don't regret that. So a small group of us would go out and explore. Any pranks being pulled from anyone over there? I know there's a a little bit of, I want to say hazing, because that's, of course, illegal in most organizations. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's it's illegal. Um, Yes, I would say that there are a lot of pranks constantly, and I think that the most hilarious ones happened when the typhoons came in Okinawa, because all the power would go out, and then you would have condensation on everything, so guys would be running down the barracks hallways like a slip and slide because of all the condensation on there, Um, or... You know, this is one for the Darwin Awards at the next morning muster, but guys would be wearing the poncho liners and then putting on rollerblades or whatever and going down the massive hills with the gale force winds. So other than that, yeah, you can get that image in your head. Pranks were constant. So I personally learned not to sleep with my mouth open if anybody was around. And the guys were always way more intense with their pranks with each other than they were with the females. They were... (laughs) They were great with the females, but they were really intense with one another. Uh, We would prank new Marines coming in. So they would check in and have to familiarize themselves with the different command in the unit by sending them out to get 500 flight of flight line, 500 feet of flight line or blinker (laughs) fluid, or, you know, you have this little PFC filling out their ID 10 T forms and stuff like that. (laughs) Which is if they've been uh, issued their BA 11s yet. Right. (laughs) That was always always a favorite. (laughs) I had a, one of my old students, he, from, he joined the Marine Corps, and I gave him a list of things that you should remember when you're in, right before he went to base camp and told him, you know, always keep your flight line dry, always have a hand, <laughs> box of grid squares on hand, never yeah. lose your blinker fluid, stuff like that, you know. Solid batteries. <laughs> yes. Always test the uh, armor in the Humvee before you leave. <laughs> hit, it with, hit it with a hammer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and those listening that write down ID 10, dash T and you'll figure out what word that spells out. I've heard that one a few times, uh-huh. <laughs> but while you're over there, I mean, did you have a chance to keep in touch with family and friends back home? Were you able to FaceTime or anything? Absolutely. I use Skype a lot. I was always keeping in touch with my family. I even got a landline installed because it was really cheap over there. Just a few yen every month. So it was very important for me to stay in touch with everybody. And did they give you leave when you're over there? Or did they, or is it just your deployment is set and you, when you come home, you're home? Yeah, usually around the holidays, things would calm down for everybody because none of the upper echelon command wants to do any ceremonies around that time, usually. So we would get about a week of leave and I would take that. And I would try to get home every year for about one week. How's the time zone adjustment doing that if we're only coming back for seven days? Who needs sleep? <laughs> you could sleep uh, on the plane or whatever. It was it was difficult, and especially going from Wisconsin back to Okinawa, that can be a rough acclimation. 
And of course, you hear a lot about people, you know, entertainers or comedians or bands doing USO tours, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan while we were still there. Did you have an opportunity for anything like that being in Okinawa? Absolutely. So there's birthday ball season. So that's the one of the most important seasons for us as Marines. And so there would be hundreds of birthday balls that we would have to go and perform at. And one of the special guests that went for Oki was Arlie Irby, who got um, quite inebriated and had to ask the band where he was at in his speech because he gave we traveled with us and he gave the same speech at every birthday ball. And so he asked us where he was. That was one of my favorites. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> Looking back on on it, what are your, some of your favorite memories from being overseas? Yeah, I think the camaraderie was one of the most important things. You kind of have the pseudo family that you're set up with. And, and I think that being overseas is entirely different, too, because you know that you don't have your stateside family there or stateside friends there. So the bond becomes even more important. So also the travel, being able to know that you're doing something good, but also getting the opportunities to interface with a lot of different cultures and different people and places. And coming home, uh, did you, so did you leave them? You came back, you said you were back in uh, Camp Lejeune. Mm-hmm. Was that where you ended your career? Did you keep moving around from there? No, that was it for me. And coming home, parents and friends throw a little parade, you know, on, you know, down Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> no, no parade. I'm also not that type of person either, but um, it was an interesting adjustment being in the military and then transitioning into being a civilian. What was the, what was the transition like back? Did any challenges that you had to face? Yeah, I actually married a Marine. So <laughs> from my unit in Okinawa. So navigating that transition together. And I think it can be very difficult for people who are very immersed into the active duty lifestyle to make all of those paradigm shifts into being a civilian. What was the biggest challenge for you? Besides marrying your husband, I mean, you know, try finding a job, of course. You know, and, you, know, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned you went back to school. I did. I did go back to school. So I think that um, the biggest challenge with that is there's a mindset that comes with being in the military, even if you're not being deployed overseas. There's just a different way of thinking and then interfacing with civilians who don't have that same language and meta communication. It's it's very difficult. I think that you you brought up something really important when we went back to school. We were one of the older ones there now. Older. Um, <laughs> and it was difficult to be in a class with 18-year-olds who seem way younger by comparison because of the experiences that we had. Did you... Did you have it, you know, like issues connecting then with, you know, fellow students or even professors at that point? Absolutely. Um, I had a great time connecting with the professors, but with the fellow students, it was difficult for group projects and things like that because here we have very highly functioning groups in the military with expectations of how things should be conducted. Everybody does their fair share, and then you get into the civilian world of academia, and it's entirely different. But- Everybody pulls their weight in college group oh, projects, yeah. of course. Nobody drops the ball. <laughs> so, from there, you see, we've mentioned when, when we were communicating that you use the vocational rehabilitation mm-hmm. to after undergrad. So, what's, I've, you know, is that part of the GI Bill then? 
Vocational rehabilitation is slightly different. So you can use the GI Bill um, or depending on your state, there's the yellow ribbon program where the states will sponsor you to, um, they will pay for you to go to college. But then there's vocational rehabilitation or voc rehab that you can use for grad school. And so I did take advantage of that to reduce the student loan debt that I would otherwise have. And it was a fantastic program. They set you up with mentors. They set you up with a person who helps guide you in the academic process, making sure you have all of the tools that you need to accomplish your degree. And from there in the, so you went to your, uh, excuse me, undergrad program with the mind of going into uh, the you know professional counseling therapy right out the gate, or did you, you had a kind of roadmap planned out? Actually, I wanted to be a veterinarian and work with animals and not work with people. And then I did end up having a change of heart um, based on a series of different recollections and experiences that I had in the Marine Corps. So when I was on duty, a lot of people in the unit would come up and just process their various struggles with me or even their worldview. And that was that I really connected with. It was so great to be able to talk to people on that level. And so I decided that that would be a great career choice. And since then, have you been able to keep in touch with anyone that you serve with? Obviously, your husband kind of, I imagine, lives with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's very important for us to stay in touch with the people that we served with. And we do so quite regularly. Um, phone calls, Facebook, a lot of social media so that we can stay in touch with people all over the world right now. And. So I'm just curious, you know, being a woman in the military, you know, especially as of late, you've heard more stories of, you could say failure of leadership, you know, if something mm -hmm. happened, they try to report it. I mean, was there, mm -hmm. was that prominent still, or is it now just because of the, you know, the social media and the internet, is it becoming more publicized? I think it's both and. I think it's always been a problem. And after interfacing with a lot of the older female Marines, they've noted that that has been in existence from the beginning. And I think that because we're hearing more about it, there's a lot more attention about it, a lot of very publicized incidences. And um, before I interface with you guys, I put out a survey to a group of female Marines and 53.8% said that they experienced MST, which is military sexual trauma. And so that in itself is highly concerning. Now, is there, is there anything that the military can do? I've seen, I saw someone in Washington, D.C. has been, they're going or pushing down some, what do they got, diversity training, I think is what they're labeling mm -hmm. as. I mean, is there okay. a way... But I mean, that seems like civilian oversight telling the military what to do. I mean, is there a way either top, bottom or bottom, top to or bottom to top way to address that and fix it? I think that it is a representation of a multiple of variables at this point. This didn't start overnight. And this is a problem that's going to require a holistic shifting. And so uh, we actually have a program here at Serenity called the Alternatives to Sexual Assault Program. And it begins with the male youth who come in too, helping them understand consent and state of Wisconsin sexual assault laws, healthy relationships and things like that. So I think that a lot of the reason that there are so much, so many um, incidences of MST and sexual harassment in the military, it's, it's because it's endemic in the culture for the military, unfortunately. 
And you hit the nail on the head there. I had this discussion with a group of about a hundred infantry NCOs years ago. <laughs> it was like, like, what can we do to fix this? And I'm like, well, the, the problem kind of starts before the military. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like by the time it gets to the military, like, you know, having training, mm-hmm. monthly training PowerPoints is does nothing. Uh, right. It's, it's really a larger problem, you know, worldwide, but especially in our country, uh, it's just, it's a cultural thing that needs to change. But, but yeah, the, mm-hmm. the military as in, as it, with pretty much everything, the military is just a microcosm mm-hmm. of the country as a whole. Like any issues that you see uh, in one are, are present in the other. Um, it just gets brought into sharper focus in the military because, you know, it's, it's more in the limelight, mm-hmm. I guess. The military also tends to attract uh, a certain type of person